Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Those are some of the most beautiful times uh, to enjoy God's nature, and it was probably a day like that day. Pretty cool spring morning, probably January or February, Jesus and his disciples need to leave Judea and go up to Galilee. That is going from the south up to the north. And between Judea and Galilee stood the region which they called Samaria. And the Bible says in John chapter 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now it was custom in that day for Jewish people to go around Samaria, to not interact with Samaria. Jews and Samaritans really didn't interact very much. In fact, they tried to avoid each other. And so it's very strange for Jesus to have to go through Samaria. And the Bible really doesn't give a reason for this. We don't see Jesus say, I've got to stop by a particular store, or I need to see a particular person. He just says, I've got to go through Samaria, like he had no choice. And the rest of the story bears out why he would do that. Jesus meets a desperate woman who comes to the well at, in, at noon in the afternoon, at 12 high noon. And she's all by herself when he finds out that she's a woman who has run through man after man, seeking to find some sort of identity, some sort of hope, some sort of security. And she year after year is coming up empty in her life and she's broken and distraught. And Jesus offers her in that moment exactly what she needs, a kind of thirst, a true thirst that can be quenched, not just for a day or for a moment, but for all eternity. And he offers her what he calls living water. And in that moment, she accepts, she takes that living water. She says, I would like to have that. And Jesus funnels her down to the point where she can accept who he is and accept that he is the source of that living water. And what we see in that story that you may be familiar with, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, is a man, Jesus Christ, living in action, his mission. That was his mission. Over and over, Jesus says things like, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And we see him living that mission and there in John chapter 4. Well, in that same moment, the disciples return. They probably cross paths with the woman as she's heading back into town. And the disciples are coming back from the town out to the well where Jesus was sitting. And they come to Jesus and the disciples want him to eat the food they've bought at the local market. They say, Jesus, you've got to eat. You haven't eaten all day. We've been traveling. It's now hot. It was cold, but now it's really hot. You need to eat. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I have food to eat that you guys don't know anything about yet. You haven't really tasted this kind of food yet. He says, my food is to do the work of God in saving souls. I picked this particular story. I could, have picked it, I could have picked several other stories about Jesus that show that this man was a man of focus. This man understood priority. Jesus was a man who had a sense of urgency to live the mission that God gave him to live in this life. We are in part number three of our series called Made for Mission, and the point is that every single created being, if you have been created by God, you were designed to live your life with a mission. 
Not just any mission, not just a particular mission, like you should just pick one out of a hat and say, I think I'll choose this mission and go after it because I guess I'm supposed to have one. You and I were given a received mission from God, that as created beings, we are to exalt and honor our Creator. And in that, we find our greatest purpose and joy. We also realize, though, as we learned last week, that to live a mission, a life on mission, that mission has to be incredibly clear. You've got to exactly know what you've been called to do. And as Jesus told us, we saw last week in Matthew chapter 28, we as believers in Jesus Christ have been called to go make disciples, to do that. And we haven't always been doing that. Today we're going to see that life on mission requires also urgency, that this is important. You see, you won't live your life on mission without a sense of urgency. You won't live your life on a sense of purpose unless you think it's that important. And so I ask the question first to Jesus and then reflect the answer to us. What, did, what drove Jesus to have such urgency? What drove Jesus to say this is so important? And we see here that Jesus had such mission because Jesus' mission, pardon me, had urgency because the stakes were so high to him. You see, I think Jesus had a sense of urgency, not just because of an excitement over what heaven would bring people, but he had an urgency that was born out of the sobriety he got from the reality of what was at stake with people's souls. To have the same kind of urgency, you and I are going to have to know what Jesus knew. And here's what he knew. And that's why Mike read the reading he did for us, which is not very uh, tasteful at times, kind of uncomfortable, but we've got to spend some time talking about it, and that is this, that hell is a real thing. Hell is a hard thing, but hell can be motivating. And let's start with the first one, hell is real. You see, out of all the New Testament voices that we see throughout all of the scriptures, Jesus spoke about hell most frequently. He talked about it a lot. He was concerned about it. It was on his mind. He was sharing with people over and over this grave reality of what was at stake if your life missed its point, its purpose. He was concerned about it. To Jesus, the doctrine of hell was incredibly real. He spoke of it so frequently, and it wasn't pretty. And so for Jesus really to try to convey what the idea of eternal life without God would be like, he would use oftentimes a lot of metaphors. He would compare them to things. Let me share with you just a couple. The first one is Jesus compared hell to a prison. A prison. In Matthew chapter 18, he would tell a story about a man who was unwilling to forgive even though he was forgiven a lot. And he said that man would be grabbed and thrown into a prison and held there until he could pay back every penny of the debt that he didn't have enough time to pay for. What he's saying is that man would be in prison the rest of his life. Hell is described as this idea of being in a prison, locked up, denied the very autonomy and freedom that you really want and are longing for, left to the torment of your own frustrated mind and experience. Hell is like a prison. He said hell is like outer darkness, absence of light, Absence of joy, absence of life. You ever, you ever been in a place that was so dark that you felt the darkness? Where your hand is in front of your face and you can't even see your hand? He describes hell in this sort of cinematic way, saying it's like outer darkness, meaning that we are so lost we don't even know which way to turn. 
that if we were called to, to say, come this way, turn right or turn left, we would probably, without even dexterity, know which way to go. There's so much outer darkness that confusion abounds. And there's nothing good left. And the curtain is closed. And probably the most common one that Jesus used to describe hell was the local trash dump, the trash heap. It was called the Valley of Hinnom, uh, translated Gehenna. Um, and this is the fr- place in the local area of Judea where there was this huge hole that was dug out. And this was a common place for people in that time. They knew where the Valley of, of uh, Hinnom was, and they would take their trash there, and they would throw it into there. They would take dead bodies that were not claimed or not wanted, and they would throw those dead bodies into there. And in that valley, in that hole, in that area that, that people knew all about was a continual burning that just would consume anything put there. That's where all that which was unwanted was gone. And what Jesus is doing in these metaphors, these comparisons, these word pictures, is trying to convey the aspects of what an eternal existence without any semblance of God would be. You see, we experience in this life, even if we are walking away from God, what the Bible calls common grace, meaning God still has presence in this world. There is still an aspect of His grace that flows to this world. And so the sun rises and food is plentiful and that there are still people doing certain things that benefit other people. But in a society, in a place that is completely void of the ballast of God, it becomes outer darkness, a prison, and the valley of Hinnom. It's suffocating, it's miserable, and it's eternal. Now, the second thing we have to learn about hell is that it's not just real, but it's really hard, actually. It's a difficult subject, right? It's a little bit quiet in here today, and I don't think it's just because the kids are being quiet. I think the subject of hell is a little bit sobering. It's, it's kind of uh, hard to deal with at times. The doctrine, the teaching of hell has fallen on some hard times, mainly for two reasons. The first one is that we live in a time of the idol of tolerance. In our culture today, um, the idea of tolerance is sort of the exalted social agreement, that we all just sort of exist in a way that we tolerate each other and we put up with each other, and that there really, any time a line is drawn, it becomes an offensive aspect. And what's happening, even in that idol of tolerance, is we realize that that idol is falling short because there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong, but that line now, because it's subjective, just continues to move and be bound up with certain different people. You see, in an idol of tolerance society, hell is seen as a divine overreaction to human mishaps. And that's what modern people see with hell. They sort of have a a trouble with an idea of a God and hell because God is seen as irrational, like like he's overextending himself, like it's not really necessary. And so it's seen as a very problematic teaching. The second problem, though, the reason hell has become hard is not just that we live in a culture that sort of exalts the idea of tolerance, but we also have a problem with the isolation of responsibility. Let me explain what I mean by this. Who is responsible for hell? Who is it? Whose fault is it? Who, whose reality has created it? That's the question. 
And in the time in which we live now, we basically have turned our attention to God and said, it is God's fault that God could just, if he wanted to, change that aspect of the game that we're playing. You know, if we, you know, you can change the rules of games that you play and modify it to house rules, so to speak. Maybe if God just changed house rules, we could just bypass this problem. Now, this has come about because we have probably leaned upon one aspect of hell and not taught the full aspect at different times. The Bible actually weaves together three aspects of hell that you need to see that bring us a clearer picture of what hell really is. The first one is, mostly understood, God's action. God's action is punishment, meaning that there is a rightful, just action that God takes towards His created beings that have opted to reject him and deny what they've been made for and live autonomously for themselves. And those that submit to God really don't have a problem with that, but those who don't understand his will, his way, or his glory, this is seen as unjust and, under, and misunderstood. But to those who understand and want to submit to God's will and God's way and God's glory, this is a just concept. And we see this concept bear itself out in parents with their children. We see it bear out with governments in their society. That there are times when authority must exercise punishment to those that deserve that. But you know, that's not the only action that takes place that results in hell. There is another action, and that's our action. You see, for us, hell is a choice. And we don't like this idea. Because when hell is all God's responsibility, I then have the opportunity to look to the heavens and say, this is your fault that this is happening to me. But here's what hell really is. Hell is a natural consequence of wanting to live your life separate from God. I mean, you can live that now. You can choose to not be a believer. You can choose to live the way that you wish to live. You can opt for autonomy and not submission. You can do that. And you can live this span of years that you exist in this life that way, but eternity, if that's what you choose, is life continually without God. Hell is for people that have opted to value autonomy over fellowship with God. And you know, you can begin to see glimpses of hell in this life. People that opt to choose bitterness over forgiveness live in hell. Agreed? It's horrible. People or consumption and greed instead of open-handed giving and freedom live in hell. People that live in envy instead of choosing to be content and grateful like God has taught us live in hell. People that choose indulgence to find pleasure instead of finding the greatness of fellowship and contentment find out what hell really is. And hell is just that experience extended for all eternity without any presence of God's grace. C.S. Lewis had a really great quote about this. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, who enter into life. And those to whom God will say to them in the end, thy will be done. Do you understand the difference? That there are people who will say to God, I want your will to be done and submit to him. And there will be people at the end who God says to them, your will will be done. And that are in hell, and all that are in hell, choose it. It's a choice. And so if you have God's action and our action, what you have is the result, which is separation. You see, God's presence gives life, it gives love, it gives joy, it gives peace. And hell is the place where inhabitants lose God and are left only with self. That's it. And the result is utter loneliness and misery.
Okay. If hell is real, and even if hell is hard, the idea of hell should create a kind of urgency in us. Hell should be, I should say, motivating. The first question is, who should hell motivate? Who should hell, this idea of hell is real, even if it's hard to talk about, who should hell be motivating? And I'll tell you, my first thought when I began digging into this was, well, obviously people that are destined, right? Or people that are um, irreligious or those that are outside of any sort of fellowship with God. But I went back and I examined all of the audiences in Jesus' life who heard his message about hell and I was chilled to the bone. Let me tell you a few of them. You had the hypocritical religious leaders whom Jesus pointed at and said, you serpents, how will you escape hell? You had self-righteous, contented religious people who Jesus told a story about, a man going up to the temple to pray, and he prayed thus within himself all about his righteousness, and the Bible says he left without being justified, not right with God. The Bible tells a story about those same people Jesus said in Luke 15 about an older brother who did, in his mind, everything right and was left out of the Father's party. Jesus spoke to the comfortable and the satisfied when he said, you have heard it was said that don't commit adultery, but I say to you that when you look at women and you lust after them, you've already committed adultery in your heart, and it's better to pluck your eyes out and have life with God than it is to go into hell. He spoke to the contented and satisfied. And Jesus even spoke to his disciples who were not yet ready to be disciple makers. When he said, do not fear people that can only harm your body. You need to fear the one who can harm both body and soul in everlasting hell. Jesus spoke to teachers, to preachers, to religious leaders, and those who practice religion about the reality of hell, both objectively and subjectively to them. That without a Savior, it's your reality too. So how does it motivate? How does hell get us moving? The reality of hell should motivate us in two ways, two aspects, that give us urgency to live this mission. The first one is this, that we should have a sort of compassion that is fueled by humility. That if you're a believer here today, and the reality of hell is within your consciousness, and you're, you're aware of it, you should have a sort of compassion for people that's fueled by humility. And I mean this. Remember where you are without Jesus Christ. What eternal destiny belongs to you if you're separate from the gracious work of Jesus Christ? Because I am no better standing in a pulpit holding a Bible teaching people about religion. I am no better than anyone else in this world without Jesus Christ. My eternal destiny is separate from him regardless of what I do here deserves hell. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 7? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do wonders in your name? Can you imagine me standing before God saying, did I not write outlines in your name? And he says, I don't know you. You remember the last words before hell? Depart from me, separate. We should have a kind of compassion that frees us from the judgment to look down our nose upon people who might not be practicing the same morals we have because they're not believers yet. Because our destiny is the same as theirs without Jesus Christ. And there should be a compassion that's fueled by humility for them. The second thing we should have is a confidence that is fueled by love. You see, one of the things that the reality of hell does for us 
is it actually gives you a kind of understanding of how much you're loved by Jesus Christ. Because if that is the reality of what we deserved, if sin deserves that eternal sort of punishment, that eternal separation from God, what does all of our sin combined together equate? And when Jesus hung on the cross, what sort of suffering did he endure? And when he said, it is finished in those three hours, what did he absorb in his pain and his suffering so that you and I would not have to experience that? You see, it's this kind of love that makes us say things like, who should I be afraid of? Why am I afraid to share the message of Jesus with others? I have this kind of love from Jesus Christ. It should give us that kind of confidence to say, who cares what people think? I've been loved immensely, eternally by the Son of God. And other people need this as well. So who, who is it motivated? All people. How does it motivate it this way? What does it motivate you to do? It should motivate you to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But what exactly do you share? I'll never forget, I went to school at Ohio University, um, and there was this famous guy called Brother Jed. Anybody remember Brother Jed at Ohio University? Barry, did you have Brother Jed when you were there? Okay, didn't know he's that old. <laughs> Just kidding, Barry. <laughs> Just kidding. And Brother Jed and his wife um, would stand on the corner of College Green, which is basically the main area where people would cross to go to class or go to the bookstore or uptown. And he would stand there holding signs, and it was like, basically, you're going to hell. That's what the sign said. And he would scream at these students. And he loved to just, you know, reel in the one student who just want to fight with him. And he would just, you know, scream at them. And then his wife would stand up and say, all of you that go out to the bars and are dancing, you're going to hell. And they just start screaming at people about hell. And so when we think about this, the doctrine of hell, is that what God is calling us to share? That we need to become street corner preachers that are screaming at people but that they're going to hell? Can I tell you, it didn't really work that well. <laughs> I never saw anybody convert to Jesus in those moments, but I did see Jesus get a bad name a few times. Anyway, when you come into the book of Acts, where you see gospel sermons being preached chapter after chapter, let me tell you in summary what it says. That Jesus Christ has defeated death. And the gospel message is this, that hell no longer has power over you. That's the message. Jesus Christ has defeated that which is against you, and now hell has no power over you. But how does that translate today? How does that translate to people who don't really believe in hell or, or think hell is kind of irrational? How does that translate? Here's how it translates. That there are aspects of hell that hold every human being captive in this life. Let me show you. Think about the idea of darkness. Hell is outer darkness. There are people that are captive right now to being blind and not knowing where to go in their life. Imagine the number of uh, young people right now that just don't know where to turn in their life. They're captured by what you would call darkness. I don't know what to do. Or the people that hit moments in their life, maybe their middle age, where they say, what have I done with the last 30 or 40 or 50 years? Where do I go now? They've hit a sense of darkness. And in those people's life, you can speak light. Jesus is light. He shows you where to go how to live and what to do. There's a better way. Bible describes hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. That there are people in this life right now that are experiencing overwhelming amounts of pain and feeling rage and anger and bitterness. And you come to those people and say, listen, there's actually a freedom from that rage. There's a freedom from that anger. There's a freedom from that bitterness that makes you gnash at your teeth and hate people and hate life. Hell is just that eternally, and you're releasing people from that problem. Jesus can show them that way. 
Hell is described as being imprisoned. And to those people, you come and say, listen, Jesus, his love and his life can liberate you from the prison you're living in right now, the prison to greed, the prison to envy, the prison to anger, the prison to indulgence, whatever prison you're in right now, Jesus Christ, his love for you can liberate you, can free you from those things right now. And you begin to show people that the current minor experience of hell they're having right now doesn't have to be eternal. That Jesus Christ can liberate them, can free them, so they're not bound to suffering here and suffering eternally. That there is a better life to be had. And if you're here today, maybe you're living and experiencing a kind of hell. Bitterness, frustration, anger, greed, indulgence, uncertainty, doubts, fears, all those things, insecurities, whatever it may be. Those things that are basically telling you, trust yourself and you'll find life. And it's not working. The Bible is screaming over and over. We're trying to present to you this message from Jesus Christ that there is a better way and there is an eternal aspect of life where you dwell with God in peace and joy. And when you understand the reality of hell and the difficulty of it, we will be motivated, like Charles Spurgeon said, we as Christians ought to say this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with their arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. If you are a believer, it's time to get urgent in this mission. And if you're not a believer, it's time to find real life inside Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing.